Welcome back or welcome to the mountain visit, everyone. This is the catcher's only podcast show. We cannot thank you enough for dialing in each and every week. We have a special show in store for you all. But first, we want to mention our shows will soon be on YouTube. You've asked and we've listened. Many of our guests have provided demonstrations, involved their furry co-guest, or even showed some hardware, like a gold glove and maybe a World Series trophy. So stay tuned. Okay, are we ready to dive into any number two of game number two? We are shipping back up to Boston. So get out your pens and notebooks, ladies and gentlemen. We are diving into the science and technology of the catching world. We are coming back at you hot and jumping right into the second inning of game number two. I guess it's ironic to say game two and inning two while we were focused on, on position number two. Well, this episode is a special treat, and we'd be shameless to say that we've tried to get our next guest on the show since our conception. He is one of the owners to a baseball company geared towards protecting both softball and baseball catchers while providing quality products from gloves to helmets. And let's face it, folks. If you have not owned a piece of their equipment during your careers as catchers, well, you're not living the lifestyle of a catcher. All right, my intro is long-winded, so let's bring him in. Again, one of the owners of All-Star Sports. Welcome, Stan Yerga Jr. Stan, how are you doing? Doing great, Tyler. How are you guys all doing? Fantastic, fantastic. We, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us. and. Uh, just talk to us a little bit about uh, All-Star Sports. Um, like I said in my intro there, there's a lot of people that all across the world have used your guys' equipment. But uh, let's start off by when did All-Star begin? Like, give us that introduction. Yeah, it's kind of a long story. I'll keep it somewhat short. But we're basically still in our original building that goes back to the 1860s. And we're a classic New England mill building on the river. And the original company was a belt and suspender company. It also made women's corsets and like uh, men's garters to hold your socks up, uh, which is all the rage back in the, the late 1800s and even into the early 1900s. And uh, that was all going great. And uh, the story goes that in 1960, we had a sales rep in Chicago calling on Sears Roebuck. And I'm not sure how many people listening even know who Sears is at this point since they're somewhat defunct, but they were kind of the target or the Walmarts of the day with their huge catalog and their department stores. And we were selling belts and suspenders. Uh, to them. Those were great. And the buyer told our sales rep that they had a, a need for a jock strap. And so our sales rep called my grandfather one day and said, hey, hey Dave, can you, um, can you make a jock strap for Sears? And my grandfather was like, I don't see why not, you know, send us a sample. And basically that was the start of the all-star division of what was the George Frost company. So the all-star division basically started with a jock strap and uh, from there basically grew into what it is now. I mean, we, we first kind of went from that jock strap into football padding, you know, hip, tail, thigh pads, elbow pads, volleyball, knee pads, uh, then got into baseball. And that's where my dad really kind of uh, really started focusing in on the catcher. Started going, um, started having some ideas on how to make better leg guards, better chest protectors. And, uh, 
we had a great fortune of meeting up with this guy, Gary Roderick, who was a pro rep um, and still is, you know, going into the clubhouses, talking with the players, uh, getting product from brands onto the players and getting that feedback. And that's really where we took off because my dad would walk into the locker room, he'd walk up to the catchers and say, hey, I'm from All-Star. I think we can make you better product. And the catchers, first of all, they're looking around. They're like, wait, wait, you're talking to me? Because no, no, no one talks to the catchers, you know? Like, you know, you probably want to go talk to the guy who, who hits the home runs or the pitchers, you know, like they, it's – and so it, it really started from there. It's like, hey, you know, tell us, you know, how can we make this stuff better? You know, what are, what are the problems – uh, you know, and we want to come back and, and try to solve those problems. So, you know, my dad would meet, you know, with these guys, get some ideas, and then maybe, you know, a couple months later, come back and say, hey, here's some, here some changes. Here are the things that you mentioned. These are ways we thought that we could address it. What do you think? And we get more feedback. And, and it was just an iterative process, a constant evolution of listening. And we haven't changed from that because it works. I mean, it's, it's just very authentic, very real. And fundamentally, we're just engineers. You know, we're, we're trying to listen to the customer, to the person who's using the product. And so whether it's spring training or as guys come through Fenway throughout the year, or we go down to uh, the Paw Sox down in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, we're always talking with the players, getting down on our hands and knees and, and trying to see, like, you know, what's going on with this gear? Like, the, the thing I tell players all the time is, you know, tell me what you like, but also, more importantly, tell me what you don't like, because that's the opportunity to make the stuff better. I always go back to something like the stress on a leg guard. You know, they seem like such a small piece, you know, like you, you barely see them from the front. But I, but I tell guys, hey, you know, like if the strap is bothering you and it's like cutting into your leg, I want to hear about it because, you know, with pop times being so, you know, it, it comes down to like a, a minute fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. I don't want you distracted for that split second because your strap is bugging you. You know, I want you to basically, you know, have this gear that is completely seamless. You don't feel it. It's there to protect you. It functions great. Um, but it all, it all goes back to listening and then, you know, trying to come back with a solution and then and vetting that solution with the player um, and just, and, and, and never taking it personal. Cause like I always tell guys like, Hey, tell me the, the honest truth. Like if this really stinks, I want to hear it sooner rather than later, you know, like just don't, don't sugarcoat it. Just come at it and just say, Hey, no, this, this, no, stop. And so, cause then we'll, we'll go back kind of huddle and, you know, hopefully come back with a better solution. So in a lot of ways, pretty simple, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. What was the, do you recall the first player or first catcher that wore your guys's catcher's gear? Oh gosh, no, I, I shouldn't know that, Tyler. That's a question <laughs> from my dad. Um, you know, one of the first names that comes to mind is Rich Gedman. And, you know, a, a longtime Red Sox uh, player, now in the coaching staff. And, and he's great. He, he lives not too far away in Worcester, about 20 minutes away. So he pops into the office all the time. And, and he's the kind of guy that you hang on every word. You, you know, he, he knows about all the nuances of the position. And it's just amazing to kind of absorb that, that long, you know, you know, storied experience, you know, with, with the game. Um, but he's one of the guys I think back to the most because I think partly because back at our, where I grew up at my parents' house, uh, we had a, a clipping from the Boston Globe. It was like front, front cover, Boston Globe, you know, the main paper in Boston. And it's a picture of Red, Rich Gedman, you know, on, on a knee, all in our gear, you know, at spring training. And so that's kind of like from an early memory, I kind of remember just Eddie, you know, in my, in my house, you know, all the time. 
Um, and so, so he's one of the earliest guys, but we've had so many greats like Tony Pena as well goes way back, um, which I, which I, I'm, I'm finding the whole one knee down thing amazing because <laughs> Tony, and, and he's another guy like, you know, back when he was a bench coach for the Yankees and I'd go into defend way to see players, just listening to, to Tony talk, you could just sit there for hours and just absorb all this knowledge and all this, this insight, uh, from this, this legendary player. So, um, he just so- didn't look right without the mustache though. <laughs> Yankees made him shave that thing off. <laughs> it's true. So you have a, uh, you probably have an encyclopedia in your back pocket of just everybody that you've been through and, and whatnot. I guess one of the questions that I have right out the gate is, uh, it's probably a hard one to answer, but how many players are you guys servicing right now as far as that are wearing your guys' gear, wearing your gloves? It's a great, great question. So we, we measure in a couple of ways. I mean, number one, we, we do have contracts with players. And that's from everyone from major league players down through the minor leagues. And, um, you know, and it's, not like, it's not like a crazy contract, to be perfectly honest. You know, like some people think like, oh, it's like tons of money involved. Well, no, I mean, we're a family business, you know, and we make catcher's gear, which is a pretty, you know, low margin. Or you know, we make protective gear in particular, you know, batting helmets, catcher's gear. Um, kind of low margin when you look at footwear and, you know, T-shirts and, you know, compression mm-hmm. base layers, you know. So it's, it's a pretty modest contract. I mean, it's mostly saying, hey, we're, we'll provide you gear, um, you know, when you need it. And uh, so on contract, we have kind of slightly north of 100 players on contract between, you know, the majors and the minors. And, but then what we do is we, we look at different points throughout the year, opening day, uh, the all-star break, and then the September call-ups in particular to kind of take, take a, a pulse of how many guys on the active roster and the 40-man roster are wearing a product. And that, that fluctuates over the years. Um, you know, you go back to the 80s, you know, in the early 90s, we had about like probably 90% uh, of the players in our oh, yeah. Um That yeah. was where the bigger monetary contracts came into play, and we'll just kind of keep it there, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, like we're, we're, we cover like around 25% to 30%, um, plus or minus, depending on, you know, roster changes and what have you. Um, when you start looking at, and that's talking about really the chest protector and the leg guards and, and the head mm-hmm. protector, all, all one. When you look at things like the mitts, we're, we're also about 30% of the active roster guys, again, plus or minus a little bit. Um, when it comes to headgear, it's actually a lot higher just because we have a lot mm-hmm. of guys a different logo on their chest who then reach out to us because they want uh, something, shall I say, better, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and the same thing is, is true with the mitt. We can well. say that. Yeah, we'll, we'll say it's better for We'll, we'll you definitely have, go there and say it. You have probably the greatest in my generation. You know, I wasn't around to watch bench play, but obviously watch, watch videos and stuff. But you have arguably the greatest catcher ever that continues to wear your helmet every single time he's out and mm-hmm. Yadier Molina. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, Yadi, it's, he's interesting. I mean, he is, um, where do I start with Yadi? I mean, he, he's always worn our helmet, you know, ever since his pro debut mm-hmm. and we no longer make that helmet any longer. <laughs> I have I one we, with me right now, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like my old Yankees one. <laughs> we, we get this throughout the years is, um, you know, you know, I want the helmet that Yachty wears. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we try to dig into like, you know, well, well, why, you know, like, and you know, is it the aesthetics? Is it the performance? Is it the look <laughs> style, the way it feels? 
and I got to be honest, a lot of times it comes down to, and this is talking with major league players, minor league players, amateurs, like it kind of comes down to it's Yachty. You know, it's mm -hmm. what Yachty wears, you know. And so um, unfortunately, you know, we don't make that helmet any longer. We have only a few left, to be perfectly honest, um, that are for Yachty. Uh, we've offered him other newer models in past years, but he's such a creature of habit mm -hmm. that he just doesn't want to change anything up. And, and we respect that. You know, we, again, going back to where I started, like we listen to the player and we listen to their needs and every player is different. You know, they receive differently. They set up differently. Uh, every body type is different. So we never say to a player, you have to use a certain model. Like we've had plenty of guys, um, um, Mike Redmond, you know, comes to mind. You know, uh, Mike Redmond, amazing guy. I love that guy. And he was kind of transitioning, um, or, you know, kind of in his final years of play when I was coming into working with the pro players. And he was using the old cotton-filled CP20 Pro. Mm -hmm. And we were making it for him, even though we probably stopped like 10 years prior. But mm -hmm. it's what he wanted. It's, it's what, what he was comfortable with. Um, he was kind of more of a bruiser. He wanted so much protection. He wanted to feel the ball more. And so we kept doing that for him. Uh, Brian Pena, uh, you know, kind of a long-time backup catcher, uh, uh, our old CP25 Pro model, uh, and Matt Trainer as well. And same thing with those two guys. Like, you know, they felt really comfortable with that. And I tried that, you know, like, hey, here's a, here's a new product. You know, try it out. You know, see, see what you, you like about it or don't like about it. Make, make some tweaks. But they are just very set in, like, what their comfort was with the old product. And so we don't mm – -hmm. Uh, you know, same, same thing goes with Jason Baratek. Uh, my dad story where um, you know, he, he goes into Fenway with a new model. And we, we typically I think he wore the same glove for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Never switched. Yeah. Close. That His, thing looked old as dirt. Yeah. <laughs> so Tex ga Gamer, at any given time, was probably three to four years old or older. And we would still give him two new custom mitts per season, but it took a long time for one of those mitts to become his gamer. And um, when he caught, was it the second no hitter that he caught? Um, the the um, the uh, Hall of Fame. They basically approached him and said, "Hey, we really want your mitt for our museum." And he's like, "You can't take my baby. No way." <laughs> <laughs> you guys totally get that. I mean, like, you know, yeah. I, I love seeing those pictures, you know, on social media where kids are traveling, like on an airplane, and they've got like their mitt next to them, like buckled in, you know, like. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Like you just don't ever let your mitt go out of your sight. You just, yeah. I, I used to, when, when I would get my glove order before spring training, I, I think I would get like a box of four of them and two of them I would use for spring training. The other ones I would, I would hold off, you know, throughout the year. And you I know when I first got them, they would all be out of the, out of the plastic and just the feeling of the, of this, this, this fur right here. I mean, that was, <laughs> That's the best feeling, and I would sit there and, and I'm smelling the glove, and I actually would, <clears throat> I would sleep with them. I, I would literally have them on one side of the bed, and my wife's like, "Really, you're sleeping with gloves? What are you ten? <laughs> and I go, "Well, you know, sorry, <laughs> nothing I can do on that." But I have a, I have a question regarding the the helmets. Yeah. So, I, <clears throat> you know, the model that Yachty uses was the same one that I did, where it was a little bit wider off of the side. A little bit narrower in here and now today's a little bit more it's a little more aerodynamic I guess um, <clears throat> the thing that I loved about it was the vision you know where when I would put on from going from the 
the hockey style mask, the traditional, the bars felt like they were six feet in front of me and I just couldn't see. You know, I would, I would leave it on when there would be pop-ups. You know, I would never take it off. Um, but it, it was. And, and I know right now there's, with the technology, I remember when you guys first came out with the titanium cage, which mm. all of a sudden guys were like, oh, this, this, the mask is light as a feather because of the, the titanium. And now you guys are using, what is it, magnesium? I, I believe I saw you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all great stuff. So, um, so being an engineer, I can get very long-winded and very detailed and go down lots of different rabbit holes <laughs> and numbers and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, starting with the what people commonly refer to as the hockey-style catcher's helmet, you know, the motivation behind that was really, again, player-driven. Uh, we were working oh. with Charlie Klein, you know, back in the day. And um, basically, Charlie called my dad and said, hey, you know, I'm up here in Toronto. Um, I'm kind of, you know, playing around with some hockey goalie helmets. I think I could be more protected this way. Um, what do you think? And my dad jumped on it. He said, this, this sounds terrific. You know, this, this could be a, a great revolution in terms of, you know, safety. And as they started doing some prototyping and testing, they realized, yeah, like, hey, we get some really good numbers out of this thing. And especially when you start thinking about backswings, um, which I'll come back to a little bit later, because that's something we're really focused a lot on right now is, is the uh, increased number of people getting hit with bats uh, in the last couple of years. Um, so anyway, so along, along the side of your head, you're definitely much better protected with a hockey style helmet just because you have something there, to put it very simply. Um, so as they're developing this so-called hockey style helmet, which we never really called it the hockey style helmet, we're a baseball company, you know, like it was sure it kind of more from a, a goalie helmet, but we called it the MVP and we still refer to it as the MVP mm -hmm. series and MVP stands for maximum vision and protection. And so that vision part that you mentioned, Chris, is, is really important because uh, with the, the bigger shell and, and more padding around your forehead and less rotation of, the, of, the, of the, the mask with this hockey style design, we can get the bars a little bit closer to your eyes. And, and certainly, you know, the, 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 the further away the bars get from your eyes, the, the more your vision gets, gets clamped down in, in, your, in your range of view. So, so MVP was definitely, you know, front and center. Like we, we definitely want to focus on the protective qualities. We want to focus on the vision uh, qualities. Most of the time when people make the transition from the traditional two-piece to the, the one-piece, they do say, wow, I can see so much better out of this. Um, I've had one guy say he didn't want to switch to the hockey-style helmet because he saw it too much. And I was like, that's a lot. <laughs> but hey, everyone's a little bit different, and maybe he just felt like he needed to be kind of more you know, tunnel-visioned and focused you know, on, on the field in front of him. Um, so yeah, so, so that's, that's sort of kind of like a, a bit about that. And, and one funny thing is we, we should probably post this at some point. Um, we, we interviewed Charlie O'Brien a couple of years ago and uh, we just went down to Tulsa and, and just kind of popped in and just kind of in his living room, you know, just did a sit down like, hey, like how did you come up with this and how, how did it all go? It's a great piece and he, he's such an amazing person. Uh, but it was funny to hear him say like, he was really just motivated to protect himself. Like he just wanted to protect himself better and he wasn't thinking about kids. He wasn't thinking about the public. He just said, I just needed better protection for me, you know? Um, and so it was really kind of us who kind of jumped on it and, and brought it to the masses. And that's also a funny story too, because the, the first couple of years that my dad and, and the rest of our, our sales force were out going to trade shows, 
showing off this brand new concept that's changing the face of the game, all of our competitors were laughing at us. You know, we had all the other major brands at that time, like pointing, laughing, saying no one's ever going to wear that. And then <laughs> maybe two or three years later, after uh, independent groups such as Noxie did more testing, they changed the safety standard um, because they saw how much more coverage you have, how much uh, you know, better protection you have compared to a two-piece. So, um, so that was kind of interesting because like basically they all make the hockey style helmet now and not a whole lot of them make traditional face masks any yeah. longer. <laughs> not a lot of volume in them. Um, but, but, you know, in, in terms of testing, like um, we get the, the, this question from parents and coaches and players all the time is like, what's the safest thing that you make? You know, is a two piece safer because it flies off your face? Um, you know, is a one piece safer because it has more coverage? You know, what about severity index and, and peak G measurements? And so, you know, what I like to tell people is that, you know, uh, my job as an engineer is really to, to educate you on what we know and then be honest with what we don't know, because there's still so much we don't know with head trauma. I mean, we're always learning. We're going to concussion conferences throughout the year. Uh, we work with guys like um, Dr. Robert Cantu, who's down the street at Emerson Hospital, um, you know, big, big, huge uh, knowledge base there in terms of sports related concussions, uh, CT and what have you. Um, but we're always trying to learn. And I think one of the biggest things that I hear year over year at these concussion conferences is that we still don't know so much, you know, and, um, and so we're, we're still just trying to learn. So certainly you can say that less energy and less force is a good thing, you know, so that's kind of where we try to go, you know, oh, yeah. I've got the air cannon behind us and we can do yeah. a little demo later. <laughs> Um, so, so we're measuring really two things. We're measuring severity index, uh, which is what Noxie uses, and we use uh, the peak. We measure the peak G. Um, is it okay if I get a little geeky here and start drawing curves? And, Absolutely. Okay, Go right so, ahead. So uh, I've got I've got a little handy dandy board <clears throat> here, and um, love it. And so, so th this is where I really put my nerd hat on and, and totally geek out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an all-star nerd hat. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. If you think about an impact, um, and hopefully you can maybe get a little closer here on the screen for those who are, are watching, I'll try to describe it as best I can in words for those who are listening to a podcast version. So, you know, if, if you have a graph and on the horizontal axis, you have, have time and on the vertical axis, you have force at, at time equals zero, there's basically no contact. Like it's just before the ball hits the mask and the mask starts compressing on your head. So as time goes on, you start to get a bell curve that looks something like this. And, and that's, you know, in, in principle, it's actually a lot more jagged. There's a lot more noise, but you kind of smooth it all out with some filters. And so you, you look at a couple things. One is you look at the top. Okay, this is, this is the peak G. Peak G being, you know, basically a measurement of force. And then the, the other thing we look at is the area under the curve. And so the area under the curve is really the total energy. And the severity index that Noxie uses is more or less the integration of this curve or the area under the curve to like the 2.5 power. But in principle, just think about it as the total energy. So, so those are two really important things, the total energy and the maximum force. And it really depends on kind of what range you're talking because sometimes one might be more important than the other because you, you can take things like um, the, the ping of a baseball, like a, a fastball, you know, it's very short duration very high, high, high peak G perhaps, um, but this is all within like 10 milliseconds. It's like really, really short duration. 
high peak. You can take another impact that might be like the thud of a football helmet, and it might look something more like this. And sure, in terms of, of the peak G, it's like, oh yeah, I'd want to get hit with this, this smaller, lower curve. But when you start looking at things like the area under the curve, this, this lower peak G impulse actually has more energy in it. And perhaps it's that's longer over time. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, in some ways, you know, it might sound counterintuitive that you want something with a higher peak G um, because it's such a short duration versus a lower peak G and a longer duration, you know, because it's all about the energy. And, and, but these are still areas where we don't know. I mean, there, there's, there's some rules of thumb uh, out in the literature and the researchers in terms of, you know, certain thresholds. But the biggest thing that we, well, we've known this for many years, is that every person is different in terms of how they respond to a head blow. Um, and back in June at, at, at one of the two uh, uh, meetings of Noxie every year, uh, again, Dr. Robert Cantu got up and, and gave um, kind of like a state of the science, you know, like where, where are we with science in terms of, of TBI and, and head trauma? And, and he said that, look, you know, we've known for many years that every person is different in terms of how they respond. But what's new is how vastly different people actually are. So, you know, some people will, you know, be affected by a very, very small peak G and others won't even, no, no effect whatsoever. They have, they have a much higher threshold. So, th so that variation between people is, is much bigger than we ever, ever knew. So, so anyway, so, so that's a little bit of like kind of what we, th those are the two key measurements that, that we measure here in the lab is basically the, the severity index and, and the peak G. So where I go with people is I say, hey, look, you know, again, there's nothing that's concussion proof especially if you're talking about repeated, you know, subconcussive blows, you know, multiple foul tips, uh, multiple uh, tackles in football, multiple headers, uh, you know, it's, it's typically an accumulation of trauma over time that then triggers a concussion. But in terms of, you know, one impact, what I tell people is that a lot of our products test very, very similar. So within like the noise of the experiment. So any type of measurement you take, you know, whether it's, I mean, I could, you know, I could say, hey, let's, let's all four of us, you know, measure the length of, of this, of this uh, you know, marker. And depending on what tools we use, and even if we use the same tool, we're probably all going to have a slightly different measurement, you know, just because we, we hold the, the calipers slightly different. So in any measurement system, there's noise. And so in the setup behind me, if you look at an independent lab like, like a Southern Impact Research Center or ICS uh, or Chesapeake, they, they measure that uncertainty of the measurement, and it's typically around 40 to 50 SI. So what that means statistically, if you have two numbers that are within 40 to 50 SI of each other, they're more or less the same, you know? And especially when you start thinking about the threshold, Noxie sets the threshold at 1,200. And, and I won't get into the details of, of meeting the Noxie standard because it's not just good enough to say, hey, I'm below 1,200. You have to show that over time with quality control testing, which is largely what we do in here. We test about two, uh, so we're around 2,000 to 3,000 helmets a year, um, both batting helmets, batting helmet face guards, catcher's helmets, face masks. Um, you know, you have to show over time that your average is more than three standard deviations below that threshold. Sorry, I'm probably getting way too geeky on this. So, <laughs> so, so, this so, is good. So, so commonly, you know, I say, I, I hear from parents all the time, like, hey, what's safer, the hockey style helmet or the traditional face mask? And first, I just say, well, look, you know, it's not like you can say all brands of hockey style helmets are the same and all traditional face masks from all brands, you know, are the same. Like, th th it really comes down to the specific models. 
in the context of what we offer here at All Star, they're all very, very similar, especially the front, frontal impacts. So when we're testing you know, at ball speeds, 90, 100, 120 miles per hour, we get very, very similar numbers on, on the front for foul tips. Um, so with the one exception, and, and I don't want to sound negative, but our titanium mass scores the worst. And it, it's, it's definitely an outlier. Um, our magnesium is our best testing right now. Our steel has always been a very good testing uh, product uh, in terms of the traditional face mask. And then really a lot of our hockey style helmets are very good. Um, and uh, I have to be careful about like talking about numbers here, but you know, in very broad brushstrokes, um, on average, we get around like 50 SI on our titanium mask. And, and that's, that's really good, but our steel masks typically are about half of that, like in the 20, 25 SI range, plus or minus. Of course, there's some variation depending on nose, eye socket, forehead, uh, but those are just like big gross numbers. So in some ways I can say, oh, well, like, you know, going from 25 SI on a steel traditional mask to 50 SI on a titanium mask, that's double the SI, that's double the energy. It's, 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 it's 100% worse, you know, than, than, than the steel. But the reality is that 50 SI is, is still very good. It's, it's a pretty low number. Um, so, um, but I just like to be honest with people, you know, because that's what we know. Um, you know, for me, I'm pretty conservative. I want the lowest, you know, SI peak G product for me personally. And, and maybe that's what makes us a bit different here at All Star is that we're a family business. And, uh, you know, whether it's my dad or me or my brother, you know, we've got like one foot here in the test lab and the other foot on the field talking to the player. So when I'm talking with like Martin Maldonado or Jonathan Lucroy, and we're talking about product, like I'm giving them stuff only what I would want to wear myself, you know? And, and actually that's a good example. It's like Jonathan Lucroy, I told him, you know, years ago, like, hey, like, you know, this is the titanium is lightweight. Yeah, it's sexy because it's titanium, but it does score higher than any other product we make. You know, just FYI, you know, don't be concerned, but just there it is. And he did have a concussion wearing the titanium mask. Um, and, you know, and this is also maybe some good insight into how we develop products, because in talking with, 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 with Luke about this, like he, he believes that the, the foul tip was off center, so the, the mask rotated and, and mm -hmm. the, the metal bar hit his jaw and therefore transferred a, you know, more energy into, into his head. Huh. And so as we're developing the magnesium mask, I've got one right here. Um, so, so this magnesium mask is, is very interesting because, I mean, honestly, like since we started working with titanium, we've been trying to find something better than titanium because if you look at a lot of the titanium product on the market, it does test higher than, than steel. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of people talk like there's, there's just frankly poor journalism out there. <laughs> the journalism kind of you know, scratches the surface and says, oh, it's because titanium is so lightweight. And because it's lighter, it doesn't absorb you know, the energy. You know, force equals mass under acceleration. And with such a low, low you know, mass, like there's not enough to, to absorb it. You know, it's like being in a Mini Cooper versus being on a Humvee. Eh, it's not quite that way. You know, um, we're, we're talking about differences of, of a couple ounces. And when we test it back here, like, you know, heavy masks versus lighter masks, weight does not affect the, the peak G or the, the severity index as much as you might think. Um, it has a lot more to do with the stiffness of the material. So, so titanium, if you're using a titanium alloy like we do and like other brands do, it's very, very stiff. 
which is great for durability because it'll probably be the last mask you ever buy. It'll, it'll just last for years. But because it's so much stiffer, there's no give. And so then more force is then transferred into the padding system. And then and maybe you, you kind of exceed what the padding system can really handle. I've heard stories, uh, not from our product, from, from other brands that, you know, the, the, the player, I'm thinking of one in particular, felt the bar of, a, of another brand's titanium mask make contact with his chin. And, and the point here is it's, it's oh, a total... Oh, wow, you don't want that. <laughs> and it's, it's a total system, right? You know, like you can't just say, oh, titanium is bad, don't use it. You have to think about, well, what kind of padding are you putting behind it? Think about suspension in a car. You know, you've got, you know, sport utility vehicles have a lot stiffer suspension. You've got, you know, pickup trucks have stiff suspension. Or you've got like a Lincoln Town car that has very soft suspension. They're built for very different elements and different loadings. And so it's, it's really no different than, you know, talking about what kind of loading you have here. Because if, it, you know, with steel, it's nice because steel will bend with a big enough impact. And I would much rather give a player a, a new steel mask that is bent because in bending, you know, it's, it's all about physics. You got this ball coming at you. It's got kinetic energy. And as soon as that ball makes contact, you know, certainly you want to deflect the ball as much as possible because then that energy kind of gets deflected, but there's still some energy transferred. And once that energy is transferred, it has to go somewhere. If the bars bend, that's great because just think about grabbing a piece of metal in your hands and trying to bend it. Like it takes energy to bend it. So that's sucking up energy. And then whatever's left over is going into the padding system to get absorbed even more. So, um, so, so it's, it's a total system. So going back to, to Lucroy, you know, he, he was talking about his experience getting a bar to the, the jaw. And he said, well, hey, could you ever just drop the, the padding maybe like a half an inch below the bottom perimeter? And I, and I said, Luke, that just, that's perfect. I mean, it, it makes total sense because yeah, certainly I don't want a mask rotating and making con and having the bar make contact with your face. But if you think about how a mask compresses and the, and the bars compress, that bottom perimeter more or less slides off the padding because yeah. it's right, right on the perimeter of the padding. Um, not, not every single situation, but at certain angles that, that happens. So by dropping the padding uh, about a half an inch below that bottom perimeter, we're, we're getting more energy transfer of the bar into the padding system. And that's a good thing. And then Luke uh, basically dug up an old face mask that it was the FM 1500 ump. It was uh, specifically marketed towards the umpire. It had a plastic plate in the, in the chin. It looked awful, to be honest. I mean, just, it just didn't look. <laughs> That's why it was the ump, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah it, it basically lived for one year and then, then just died. But, but it got Luke thinking like, hey, what if you put a plastic plate you know, in, in the, in the jaw area. And, and I said, well, Luke, that kind of makes a lot of sense because, you know, comparing a hockey style helmet to a traditional face mask, we get very, very good, consistent, low numbers. Uh, sometimes, you know, a little bit lower than traditional face masks, but again, it's within that noise and measurement. So you can't say really one safer than the other, but part of our thinking is that with the hockey style helmet, you've, you've got a different system. It's not just the metal bars onto padding. You've got metal bars onto a shell then onto padding. So you have this other, this other interface that you have to go through. This, this plastic shell helps disperse the energy over a broader area. You then use more padding to absorb that blow versus point loading a very specific you know, location on your chin or your forehead. So we, we made some samples where we dropped the padding below the perimeter, but then we also made some samples with the dropped padding below the bottom perimeter, but also inside here was a plastic plate. 
because that, that umpire model just looked, it just didn't look right, having the plastic plate standing out in front there. So we concealed it instead. And, you know, it was, you know, in this room where I'm testing it, we got like a 10G savings just by dropping the bottom perimeter. And then when we had the plastic in there, we had like another 10Gs. And so on net, we had like a 20G savings. Hmm. That sounds like a lot, but I like to put this in, in real context, you know, because you know, some people, you know, hear things like, oh, fighter pilots in, you know, fighter jets will pass out when they have um, like a G-force of like four Gs, I think, or something around there. So you're like 20 Gs, oh my gosh, like that is huge, you know, like what you're doing. Well, it's 4G sustained over like the arc of a, a pitched turn, you know, and whereas back, like I said earlier, the energy is transferred from the ball to the head form in less than 10 milliseconds. It's, it's just in a blink of an eye. So in that context, 20 Gs is really not a whole lot more than doing a jumping jack. Because so I, I think when you measure jumping jacks, it's about 15 Gs per jump, if I'm not mistaken. And so I like to just kind of, again, be very honest with people, what we know, what we don't know. And yeah, you can say, well, 50, well like a 20 G savings is really not huge. You know, it's, it's not much bigger than the, the, the variation in testing that you have. But if we're moving the needle lower, we want to go that way. It just makes sense. Um, you know, anecdotally, we hear a lot of great stories from guys who, who use this, you know, whether it's Lucroy, um, Nick Shufo's got some stories that, you know, he's in the minor leagues with the Texas Rangers right now. Um, multiple guys have just said that they, they, they feel a difference. Um, it's anecdotal, you know, um, but part of it is, is also the design too. Like we're, we're really trying to make the ball skim off one way or the other. Um, so when we, we take the, the high speed camera and look down on the impact, we can never really get a ball to get stuck. Um, cause with a traditional mass that has the, you know, the old school, you know, kind of upside down U shape, it's a perpendicular surface. So if you shoot that just right, we get the, you know, the ball basically hits it, kind of gets stuck and then just drops down. Whereas with this design, you're skimming either way, and that that helps. I mean, that's like your first line of defense. The more you can deflect the ball, the, the, the better. Going back to the hockey style helmet, that was a lot of the, the design drive for a more aerodynamic look. Have less, have, have more glancing blows, less perpendicular shots, um, just to help kind of get you know less direct perpendicular shots uh, to the, the, the mask. Have I gone too deep down the rabbit no, hole? No, that that is. Unbelievable. No, I was just going to make a comment about the, the design of that because I have um, one of the old hockey style masks with me right now. And just looking at the bar shapes, I mean, that's the one thing that I'm just kind of amazed by is just how different it is. It's not has any curvature to it, but it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's just great. I have a, a couple guys that I train as well, and, and they use the magnesium mask and they love it. That's mm -hmm. great. Yeah, it, it takes a little bit of adjustment because. Mm -hmm. Like, like going back to materials, like magnesium is really cool because it's lighter than titanium, but it behaves like steel, meaning that with a big enough impact, it will bend. And so, and again, that's okay. I want it to bend and absorb that energy. That's much more important than sending more energy in, into your head and your brain. Uh, that said, we've had very few bend in the field. Um, you know, actually, that's a funny story with Chris Jimenez. I don't know if you guys have ever met him, but he's he's amazing he, he's um he's now working with ryan sienko who you had on the program um you know over the dodgers and i've known chris for gosh for so many years and um so he was one of the early adopters um of the magnesium and uh one day he sends me a text and he's like hey stan i took a foul foul ball you know in today's afternoon game um you know it, it bent and, and he sent me a picture like the eye openings wider and i said whoa chris chris 
don't use it. You know, I don't want a ball going through, you know, at all. Um, you know, I, I'm going to send you one. I'll, I'll next day air it, but I can't do it until tomorrow. So you, you have like basically one or two days where you just have to go back to your old backup mask. And um, so, you know, that was probably at night. I get into work next day, get this, you know, next day air a, a new mask. And that later that night, as this mask is in transit to him, he sends me a text, says, hey, Stan, no need to send me a mask. Because I took another foul tip, and now the opening's back closed again. And I was like, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Just put, put that mask in the trash. You know, like, your, your head is more important, you know. Um, but that's, that's really only one of, like, a couple uh, times that that has happened, where, where the magnesium wow. is. Um, because, yeah, I mean, again, it's, you know, I think people think about extreme sports, and they're like, you know, baseball, ah, you know, it's really not that extreme, you know, it's just a team sport, you know. But dude, if you're if you're, you know, face to face with a hundred mile per hour, you know, fastball, it's 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 extreme, you know. <laughs> and we still don't know about backspin, you know, when you know, certainly a foul right. ball physically cannot have more linear speed because you're 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 hitting against it in the opposite direction. So it can't be going any faster, you know, linearly. But you've introduced spin, and that spin was a lot of energy. And and this is probably a really bad analogy, but um, you know, I, I've, you know, my my uh, Polish lineage will will, will stand uh, come through here with my uh, my great aunt. <laughs> like they used to be on TV on Saturday mornings, you know, bowling, and um, and so when you're when you're bowling, you know, people hook the ball, not really to hit the pins at an angle. It's because they learned over time that all that spin of the bowling ball is energy and that spin once it hits the pins makes it pins go flying everywhere much more than just a regular rolling ball so again it's, it's probably not a very good analogy but That's... it's but it's but it's still you know it it's it's real that you're introducing spin that was not there i mean certainly some some guys have crazy you know spin like we, we used to work with um uh oh gosh uh, Mets, um seth lugo you know, who I think has the highest spin velocity ever measured with StatCast, which I don't know how they measure that. It's just unbelievable the stuff they can measure now. But, um, but you know, certainly having more spin definitely has more energy. When it makes contact, it has to go somewhere, you know. So, but again, that, that's, again, another area where we don't know. No one's been able to study it in a, in a repeatable fashion, you know, what spin does in the context of a, a helmet. So, so you, were, you were talking a little bit, Stan, about backswings. Yeah, you know, it's something that you're testing now. What are, what are you guys looking into with that? Yeah, so can I take you on a little tour? Let's do it. All right, cool. So 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 behind me, we've got um, the air cannon, um, kind of like right behind here, um, mm -hmm. head form. Uh, we also have the Noxy thoracic surrogate here for doing the chest pressure testing, which I can I'll be happy to tell, tell you about that more too. But let me unplug here and take my laptop around. So um, so yeah, so basically, uh, let's see if I can do this at the same time talking. Chew gum. Um, so yes, yeah, so we have air cannon. Um, like it sounds, this pressurized air shoots out baseball, softballs, lacrosse balls, and then over here is our wonderful assistant. This is the small head form, basically the, the youth size. Um, we have three different sizes. So if we step over here, um, we have. Let's see. Yes, yeah, so we've got basically the, the medium head form, which is like your normal average adult size. This guy is the large head form, which is sort of like a football linebacker. Um, really oh, enormous. That's Chris's head right there. <laughs> <laughs> you might be wondering why we have this white paste. And, and truth be told, this is desitin, like baby diaper butt paste. Oh, yeah. Um, we do that because um, <laughs> when we're testing you know, catcher's face masks or batting helmet face guards, 
we want to make sure there's no contact of the ball to the face and, and no contact of the bars to the face. So anytime you kind of hit, you know, the bar to kind of leave a mark on the paste. And, um, and, and if it ever makes contact, you'd see it on the ball as well. Uh, so then over here, this looks a little bit plain right now because the head form is not on it. Um, but this is the drop ring right here where we take, you know, take one of the head forms and mount it and you can get all different kinds of positions. You go up and down, you can rotate it. So you can hit a, a wide range of, 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 um, of areas on, on the head form. And we do that to simulate getting hit with a baseball bat. So what we do is, um, I'll go down here now. This is, this is really fun using a laptop as a <laughs> So here, if you can see it, is, is a metal anvil and it's round, it's, it's a half cylinder. So basically picture a baseball bat and we're, we're dropping the head form down onto this anvil. So we, we take the head form, we put a catcher's helmet on it or a skull cap and we drop it down. And, and that's all well and fine, but when you think about the physics, you know, getting it hit by a baseball bat, you're not whacking your head on the ground. You're, in, you're, you're getting hit and your head keeps moving after it. And that's back to the air cannon. You know, the head form is on, on a sliding rail system, which is meant to simulate how your neck you know, responds after getting hit. And so, so when we're, we've been thinking about this for years, thinking, gosh, like this is not really correct. You know, about, it's just not the right physics. You know, it's certainly better than nothing, but is it really truly measuring or, or simulating what's happening in the real world? So we started playing around some things like, well, how do we swing a bat? And how do we swing in a repeatable way? And we first started with uh, a clay pigeon shooter, you know, like for, uh, you know, for rifle shooting. And, and it was great. We could swing a bat pretty hard, but it was very wobbly and not very precise. So we worked with a local college. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Rich, you know, he went to Worcester Polytech, WPI, just down the street in Worcester. And uh, they have an awesome program with their engineering uh, school where they have, you know, your senior year, you do a design product. A project and so we worked with the WPI engineers to basically develop this bat swinger and it's it's, it's awesome basically um, we can you know you know deliver a blow to the head form in a very precise repeatable way so what we do here is we have another uh, you know another sliding uh, neck uh, for the head form we put the head form here we you know mount the helmet or I've got all kinds of skull caps we're working on and then we can deliver a really hard blow, you know, right to the side. So there's really nothing more realistic to simulate getting hit with a baseball bat than getting hit with a baseball bat. <laughs> so, um, so, so, that's, so that's what we're working on. Um, we have some stuff that basically was just getting seated to spring training as spring training was shut down. Um, it's, a, it's a better, higher performance skull cap that has uh, some augmented padding in it and a really, really nice removable washable liner to put it really simply. Still a plastic shell, it's polycarbonate, um, which, is, which is more dense um, than ABS. And ABS is what we use uh, you know, primarily. To, it's a special blend of ABS where um, it's just a high impact crack resistant ABS that we use. Um, but polycarbonate is what we use for our pro catcher's helmets, our pro hockey style catcher's helmets, and what we're using for the skull cap. It's just even more crack resistant um, than, than ABS. Cool. Bit more dense and, and actually this is an interesting thing too like going back to Yachty's helmet so Yachty's helmet is a fiberglass reinforced with Kevlar on the forehead mm -hmm. and 
back when I started here in 2005, we started looking at, hey, how do we make that helmet lighter? Because one of the complaints from guys was, hey, I, I want to wear your hockey style helmet, but it's heavy, mm -hmm. so much heavier than a traditional two-piece. And so when I started getting into it, we chose that type of polycarbonate, which we were already using on a batting helmet. We, we developed it with GE. And it was really nice because it's, it has, this polycarbonate has a, amazing crack resistance and, or, or tear resistance. So to give you an example, like the, the last thing we want to happen to anyone is to have a helmet crack. Um, and if it cracks, the first crack is really not bad at all. In fact, you get really low numbers. And, and I should have said this earlier, low is better. You know, low PG, low severity index, the lower, the better, because that means less energy, less force, uh, which is again, a good thing. So then uh, with, uh, you know, doing the impact testing, uh, but also be less crack resistant. Because after you take that first, like the first crack, you get very, very low numbers. Because again, think about ripping plastic open. That, that takes energy to, to tear that plastic. This is not that different than a bicycle helmet or a motorcycle helmet. They're a one and done type of design. The, the EPS material that's used in bicycle helmets and motorcycle helmets is designed to crack and fracture. And that absorbs a tremendous amount of energy on that one hit. So the problem is we can't use materials like that in baseball because oftentimes you're gonna take multiple hits over the course of a season, a week, maybe even a day. So that first crack in a catcher's helmet, not so bad. The second crack is, can be catastrophic because you've, you've started that tear and now the shell is compromised and it flexes a lot more. And, that's, and typically that second crack, or, or, or once you have the first crack, once you hit it again, it cracks even easier. Um, and that's not a good thing. But our polycarbonate blend is different. You get that first crack, it might be an eighth of an inch. You hit it again at 100 miles per hour and it might tear another eighth of an inch. You hit it a third time at 100 miles an hour and it tears another eighth of an inch. It just keeps tearing a little bit, almost like a ripstop type of fabric. So that made us feel really good because in the context of Major League Baseball, you're in this big stadium, it's loud, it's noisy, you get hit, you have some adrenaline pumping, you might not think to check your helmet super careful. And we don't want a guy to, to then put it back on with a crack, take another foul tip back to back that inning, and the next thing you know, his helmet just splits wide open and he's injured. That would be horrible. So when we're developing, you know, trying to find this replacement for, you know, the helmet that Yachty uses, is one of the design challenges was how do we make a new helmet be more tear resistant, crack resistant, than the fiberglass with reinforced Kevlar. And that was a pretty high hurdle, but believe it or not, that polycarbon actually tests better head to head. So we were basically behind me, you know, we would do head to head competitions. So we would, you know, take the Kevlar fiberglass shell, rifle, you know, as many balls as it took to get that first crack and, and, and note that, and then keep on firing and see how, how, how much bigger that crack, per, you know, got with every successive blow. And then we did the same thing with the polycarbonate shells it performed better. It just, you know, it, it, and so that was like, all right, good. We got it. We, we got a material that performs better than what we had and let's go forward with it. So, um, so yeah, so that kind of, I'm kind of going to get another, another yeah. rabbit hole. No, yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. But that's, you know, it, it's all, it, it sounds, you know, it's, it's all cannibalistic kind of here, you know, like we're always, <laughs> we're always just breaking stuff and just trying to see how do we make it better? Where's it break? Let's make it stronger there. Let's try to break it again. Oh, it breaks somewhere else. Hey, let's improve that spot. And 
you could say like, well, that sounds like very old school. You know, why don't you do a lot of like mathematical, you know, finite element analysis modeling? And we could, but oftentimes it doesn't really work to be perfectly honest. You know, yeah, you gotta have trial and error with like real reality. That's, that's, that's happening to the guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Stan, I mean, could you shoot a couple? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, so let me, <laughs> so yeah. So it's, it's like, um, let's see, can you see? Yeah, that's, yep. that's so, um, so again, this is the, the youth head form. Um, I've just got, this is a helmet that's been tested. It's kind of grabbed it out of uh, Lewis, our technician. He's had on the rack. Um, pop it on. And it's, it's basically like an old muzzle loader. Uh, you put the ball in. You have a little plunger here. And then. Is this going to be loud? It, it is. So, you know, you might. <laughs> um, but it'll probably be okay. You might want to take your headphones off. <laughs> but for those listening, hopefully it won't be too loud. Um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put earmuffs on because it is really loud in here, um, <laughs> and uh, so so you have like a little pointer which you might be able to see in the video here, and that gives us you know you know basically where the ball is gonna hit. I've got it targeted basically at the forehead of, of the catcher's helmet, and we'll pull this back. Uh, let me make sure the air pressure's on. Yep, we're good. Close the door. Wow. Scared me. I, that was loud. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. So, so that was that was at ninety-five miles per hour. Uh, if you can see, you know, maybe up top here, we have a, a velocity meter, and then we, we smudge the logo. And uh, in terms of the numbers, let's see. And pull it over here. Sorry, I should. I usually do this differently, where I show everything to reset. I can. I can go back and do this again. But um, down here on this analog uh, computer, it says twenty-one. That's the the severity index. So again, very very low number, especially for ninety-five miles per hour, um, and a forty-one peak G. So that's oh. testing for you. So then, um, then let's see. Do you want to see another one? Let's do yeah, it. Absolutely. Let it fly. I'm using a laptop uh, as a camera, but. All right, here we go. So three uh, on uh, the count of one, I'll I'll pull the trigger. Three, two, one. Whoa. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just so fast you don't even see it. You know, it's, it's wow. like the blink of an eye. And then oh, and then here, let's see. So that was was it ninety seven point seven nine miles per hour, and. Uh, Severity index of 13, so that's a really nice number, and a peak G of 35. So, so there you go. And um, and and just there, you can see that. I think the first one we did was like 20 some odd. Uh, yeah, because that one was less. At the point of contact, yeah. well, but but the, pro the the I don't say the problem. The, this this equipment is not designed to measure very low numbers. So the precision at, at such low numbers is all over the place. So what we know from gotcha. years of testing is that, because going back, let me sit down, and um, so I'll get the handy dandy whiteboard. So again, if you're thinking about time on the horizontal axis and, and the force on the vertical axis, I was, draw, I was drawing nice curves like this, like nice bell curves. Um, but in reality, there's a lot of noise and it's kind of jagged and it, it might have actually another peak here it's, it doesn't look that pretty. So in terms of the, the circuitry, 
picking off the peak G is a pretty simple part of the computation. That's pretty repeatable. Like, especially what, as our numbers get lower and lower, uh, the peak G is much steadier and more repeatable than the severity index. The severity index, again, is the area under the curve to the 2.5 power, I think it is. So any, any sort of difference to the shape can really throw off that severity index number. Plus it's getting filtered. So you have the, the introduction of, uh, of a, some other factor that's changing the value when you start filtering the curve to be a, a, a less of a jagged curve to a more pretty curve to do the, the calculation. That's probably the best I can do to explain it is that we're, we're getting so low that yeah. The, there's there's more variation with the severity index and less variation to peak G. So it's not uncommon to see them flip-flop when you're at such low values. Gotcha. Are you uh, are you guys using any high-speed cameras? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you see a lot of really cool things with high-speed cameras. Uh, so one of the things I, I hear, and you guys probably hear this too, or believe, especially in the umpire world for, for whatever reason, is that a two-piece mask is safer than a hockey style because the mask can spin off and, and, and just blow off your face. And while earlier I said, yeah, like deflection is a good thing because the more you can deflect the energy, there's less energy to, to absorb. But when you think about a mask, you know, basically spinning off of your face, in order to spin off your face, it has to pivot on something. And it's basically pivoting on your cheek. And so what we've done is we've, we've taken, you know, over here um, on our, our kind of cube where all the ball ricochets, the, the top panel is, is plexiglass. And so we do video right from the top down to get a, a nice vertical, you know, look down on the impact as well as, as filming through the, the front here. And so when you, when you look down from above, you get to see some really neat things. One is that when we do off center shots to spin the mask off the head form, I mean, to the naked eye and to, to regular speed video, it looks like the mask just flies off the face. But in the slow, in the high speed camera, when you slow it down, you see what's really happening is the mask is fully loading and compressing on that side and then rebounding off of the face. The mask is coming completely off the face. And because it's on this elastic harness, it's, it's getting, it's pulling elastic harness and then slinging to the side and coming off. So again, in the blink of an eye, it looks like it just blew off your face, but it's actually completely loaded the head form, rebounded, com has com come completely off the head form, and then swung around to the side. So, you know, that's-, that's I would love to see that video. Yeah, that's, you gotta post that one. Well, you know, I, I try, I'm not exactly the, the most diligent poster on Instagram, but I, I try to do Testing Tuesday. Tyler is. <laughs> So, so I, I will, I'll, have to, I'll have to put that on the docket to, to put up there because it is really interesting. Uh, kind of similar thing that, you know, again, we're just a bunch of geeks. Like we, we think about, you know, first principles and, you know, let's just go by the numbers and like see what happens. So a number of years ago, someone came to us with this, this patented harness design that is at like a 45 degree angle. And he said that this, this, this harness basically allows the mass to fly off the face much more easily. Um, and therefore it dissipates or deflects, you know, I think said like 70% of the energy, um, which again, he, he, well, it's kind of weird. He had no numbers from a lab, <laughs> just based on his experience. Um, we said, well, hey, look, you know, if this is factual, that sounds great, you know, um, but let's test it. And so what we did right here is we, we took, you know, we, we have our, our neoprene elastic harness. So we put, you know, one, you know, 
we use the same exact mask as the FM25 steel mask, uh, same padding system, same bars. The only thing that we we're changing was the harness. So we had our, our Delta Flex neoprene harness. We then had our, our traditional nylon elastic harness. We had this guy's other harness that was nylon elastic, but at a 45 degree angle on the head, kind of sticking you know, to the top of, kind of top back of your head. And then as a fourth, we, we put a mask with no harness. We basically put a cardboard box underneath the mask to balance it up against the head form. So it ab had absolutely no harness whatsoever. So there you're kind of testing all conditions. You know, does the material, the harness matter? Does the angle of the harness matter? Does having a harness at all matter? And what we found was that you got all the same numbers, again, within hmm. that, that measure of variability. Because with the high-speed camera, in all cases, you're seeing that the mask was fully loading before it ever spinned off, before it ever rebounded. It, it's ju it just happens so fast. So, you know, I can appreciate why people think that a two-piece is safer because it spins off, but it just ends up, you know, it's kind of like Mythbusters. It's like, no, nah, it's been debunked, you know, like it just doesn't, it doesn't really happen that way. Um, but going back to numbers, I mean, like I, again, like I said earlier, it's like my job is to tell people what we know and what we don't know. And, you know, then they can make the decision that's best for them. Because I also believe that you have to be comfortable in what you use. It's, you know, especially at the highest level. Absolutely. Levels, it's, it's a mental thing, right? You know, it's a, it's a mental game. I don't want guys being distracted. I don't want guys, um, you know, I've had one guy say that he can't wear a hockey style helmet because he, he feels claustrophobic. Well, don't wear it, you know, like that's, that's, you know. Well, I, have a, I have a question then. <clears throat> so with me coaching high school this year, and obviously with a, with a son who's a, a year away from high school, and with all the kids that I train who are in high school. Now, up here in New York, they all have to wear the hockey style like they've made that mandatory. They have to wear that. But yet this Same is here. saying that it's from a deflection yeah. standpoint and impact that the traditional is actually safer regarding impacts. I don't think there's any data to support that. Um, it's, you know, and, and I'll, I'll fall back on Noxy. You know, I mean, they, they're the ones that set the safety standards. And again, you, it's really hard to say that all hockey style helmets are equivalent and all traditional two pieces are equivalent because again, titanium, steel, magnesium, you know, how dense your pads are, you know, right. that, that all really affects things. So yeah. it's really hard to, to say, you know, that, that they're all created equal when they're a hockey style helmet and they're all the same when they're, they're a two piece. Cause they really aren't. There's so much variation from the different brands and even within the different brands. So for me, again, being a family business and, and telling people what I would use or have my children wear, I, I do the, the hockey style, the, the, the one piece. Um, especially because we're seeing so many guys get hit with bats now, um, you know, at the pro ranks, you know, major league, minor league, uh, we're seeing more and more of that in the last, I'd say three seasons, we've had more guys in the pro ranks, both major league, minor league switch to the hockey style helmet and very, it's, it's almost, I wouldn't say never, but it's almost always true that once someone switches to the hockey style helmet, they don't switch back. Um, you know, you, what you guys had, had Tucker Barnard on earlier, you know, a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago. And, and Tucker, when we first started working with him, it really started with the helmet. Um, and, and he was a hockey style guy. Then when he kind of went away from, from All-Star on the gear, he went to the, the two-piece. This year, he was kind of coming back to it and playing around with it. But it was still kind of on the fence, I think, during spring training on what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. But he's one of only a couple of guys I can think of that have kind of switched back. Um, I've had other guys like John Baker, uh, you know, back when he was on the, I think it was the Marlins. Uh, he came up through Fenway one time and he had just switched that 
and this is this is years and years ago, but um, he, he he said, well, and at Fenway again, I'm always curious why guys make choices. You know, like wh- why did you decide this? Why did you decide that? Just to learn from it. And so I said to John, say, hey John, you know, how come a couple of weeks ago you reached out to us for a hockey style helmet? Like, what's you know what's the motivation there? And he said, well, Stan, you know, like the day that I was bleeding out of my ear, I, I thought that maybe I just had to have a change, you know, because I guess he took a massive backswing and that was kind of the wake up call. So, so, you know, so as much as I say, like it's personal preference, um, I think that's really true at the professional level when you're an adult and you can make your own choices. Uh, for kids, I still think that the hockey style helmet is more adequate. Uh, you have much more coverage. Um, sometimes you're up against batters who don't have very good control of their backswing. Um, there's just more, <laughs> right. error, you know, I think at, at the amateur level. Um, so, so that, that's my personal feeling, you know, but again, it's, Hey, we're, we're in the U S you know, you should, you should have, you know, personal choices and freedoms. Um, you know, but again, my job is really just, Hey, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. And then you make the, the choices best for you. So we've talked a lot about the gear and the protective stuff, which is, unbelievable to just to hear the the design and the science and everything behind it i want to switch over a little bit to gloves um do you recall was tex the first guy that wore your guys's glove when did you start designing gloves and then uh we can have a shameless plug by one of our co-hosts here to talk about his trainer that he designed for you guys so uh, i guess my first question then is is when, when did you guys start getting into the glove making business well it was really, um, I'll try to not mention brands, but basically it was a point in, I'd say the late eighties, early nineties, where we started losing some market share in terms of the gear. And what the Achilles deal was, was the mitt. You know, a lot of guys were, were dropping our catcher's gear to go to this brand's mitt. And then it was like an, a head to toe type of deal. And so our dad started kind of playing around with things. I can't remember who the first guy to use our mitt was. I should know that. Um, so then, but here's kind of a, a short history of, of the evolution is that the first couple of years out, we had the solid tan mitt and the solid black mitt. And I see Chris smiling here. You, you probably remember that to some extent, Chris. I love the tan one. That was, that was my favorite. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so the, the feedback, again, going right to the players, you know, what's working, what's not is that the, the was a broken, great, great pocket formed, loud pop, you know, made the pitchers throw like, you know, feel like throwing 200 miles an hour. Great, great, great feedback. But a couple months in the season, it was a rag. It just got too floppy. The solid black mitt, on the other hand, it took longer to break in, but it, but it lasted longer. And so and it's the same exact leather. It's just tan two different ways, which then affects the, the physical properties of the leather. So then after hearing, you know, this feedback for a couple of seasons, you know, my dad, said, well, hey, we should just make it like a Reese's Pieces, you know, bring the, the best of both worlds together. And so basically have the tan on the inside for, again, that, that great shape of the pocket, the great pop, um, the great break-in. But then on the back shell, use the, the stiffer black leather to help give it some, some support for, for more longevity. And, and, and this is one thing I've found fascinating is how mitts have changed I'd say probably in the last five to six years. And, and we, we don't really, we, we don't fiddle around with things. If it ain't broke, don't fix. You know, actually this just reminds me of um, back, I was at the Brewers for spring training years and years ago, both Lucroy and Maldonado were there. I think we had about six guys around a round table and I'm showing them new, new product. And one of the mind leaguers looked at me and said, Hey, um, 
are you making any changes to your mitt? And I was like, Ooh, um, no. Um, uh, you know, I was kind of feeling defensive here. I was like, you know, should we, you know, like what's, what's up? And he just says, no, make no changes. Don't change your mitt at all. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so we're, we're very conservative when it comes to the mitts. Like we, 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 we use great leather, great patterns. And, mm-hmm. We don't want to vary much from that. You know, we're we're not going to do funky colors and and crazy you know back shell materials because it, it all ultimately affects the performance. But what's been fascinating to me is really yeah, like the last five or six years, we've had so many guys switch to our solid black mitt, and then this year so many guys switched to our thirty-four inch mitt. Ah, there you go, Tyler. Nice. So, and and, and what again, just based on the feedback and what we're hearing is you know, we, we had the black and tan and that was the only thing we offered for so many years. And then we had guys like Jose Molina who said, Hey, can you make a solid black? Uh, I'm sorry. It was Benji Molina, uh, the older brother. Benji, he's talking to my dad. He's like, Hey, can you make a solid black mitt? And initially kind of just start off just because I want to be different. Everyone has a black and tan mitt and Benji, he did, he gave so much great feedback on all of our product for so many years. My dad said, sure, why not? You know, here's, here's an all black mitt. And back to like the original all, all black mint, it was stiffer, took longer to break in, but Benji liked it that way. And then I think the next guy was Jose, his brother, who, who wanted one. So we made one for him. And I think the third one was Martin, uh, Martin Maldonado. And, and he called me up and he's like, uh, I shouldn't do an impersonation. He's like, oh, Stan, you know, hey, it's Martin. <laughs> can, you, can you make an all black mint for me? <laughs> Martin, like, I'd love to, but it's just, we're kind of just doing it for Jose, you know, for Jose and Benji, you know, like they're just kind of close, you know, they've done a lot of development with us. And then Martin's like, well, Hey, I'm, I'm getting Benji's old mitts anyway. And I'm like, uh, okay, sure. You know, so, <laughs> and then, then, then we kept getting, you know, more guys asking for it. And, and again, like we, we kept asking like, well, why, you know, is it, is it an aesthetic thing? Is it a color thing? You know, does, does, and actually that, oh yeah, that was a cool story. So do you guys remember Coy Hill by any chance? Yep. Absolutely. Yes. Cool. Yes. So Coy, I love this story. So, cause I had, I had guys like kind of like after Martin, you know, asked me for an all black mitt. And the reason was is that it just didn't get dirty as, as much as the, the tan mitt. And I was like, okay, that's kind of functional, but it's still not a real kind of physical functional difference, you know? And, and as an engineer, like I, I want to hear like a real reason. So Coy had this really cool story where when he was growing up in middle school, his mom would not let him have black high tops. Like he, he was on a basketball team, you know, middle school basketball team. You know, everyone probably had, you know, all black Jordans. And his mom said, Koi, you cannot have black high tops. And Koi's like, why, mom? Like, all the cool kids have them. You know, like, I want to have black. He's <laughs> nope, you have to have white. And, and the whole reason was that she felt that kids who had black high tops, their feet look slower. And she didn't want the coach thinking that he was slow, you know, that, that he, and, and so what, then Koi's thinking about this and he's like, well, hey, if I've got an all black mitt, and it looks, and, 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 and if it's anything like these black high tops that look slow, well, my all black mitt looks slower to an umpire. Like, well, I get more pitches in my. Wow, life. okay. And, and I said. Okay, that's an interesting feed. Yeah. And, and again, being the geek that I am, I was like, Coy, that makes 100% sense because our eyes detect motion largely by seeing <coughs> and seeing how, you know, and how lines move. And with, with the black and tan, you've got these pretty clear, distinct lines between the black and the tan leather. You know, they're very clear, visible things that you can see move. But once it's all black, it's, it's much more stealth. I mean, it's, it, maybe that's why stealth fighter jets are all black, you know, like yeah. 
but it's it's just it kind of conceals more. So I was like, Koi, you just earned yourself an all black mitt, you know. So, <laughs> there but, you go. But then, do you, uh, Stan? Do you remember? Now your dad made this for me, and I threw out the idea one time. I think it was in it was in two thousand, and we were going through gloves, and I think it was it was the same it was the same year where I I drew up the design for the for the CM one hundred. Yeah, but I had I had said you know the hardest thing, especially when you're playing in the humidity and you know you got moisture everywhere, guys are always tightening up their thumb, and your dad actually made my gloves had a Velcro thumb for it, so uh -huh. it was the it was it was very low, like it was set up, it was set up down here almost on the very very edge to keep the thumb locked in, but it was just a piece of Velcro that would boom snap it in every time and they Whoa. did that they did that for when i played and then they they stopped making it um yeah i don't know if anyone ever ever went off and used that besides me but i always thought that that was that was something just more convenient for them instead of always having to tighten everybody's always tightening up the thumb and grabbing their laces and pulling here pulling there and um yeah so that was that was one of the cool things when I threw out that idea. He was just like, he goes, yeah, let me put, let me put a Velcro and let me know how it was. And, you know, the, the guys that I were playing were like, where the heck did you get that? I'm like, oh, pays to know somebody, I guess. So. <laughs> that, that's great, Chris. I'm, I'm going to have to dig that up and, and, and see what my dad recollects because that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, in full disclosure with Martin Maldonado, you know, we do his thumb loop a little bit tighter um, or, or make it so he can pull it tighter. Um, and then also this past spring training, he felt like the, the wrist closure uh, needs to be tighter as well. And we've heard that from a couple other people. So we're working on some changes there, just some real subtle changes that are easy. Um, yeah. But again, like that, again, this is how we operate. It's like we, we listen to what you guys are experiencing, take that and, you know, this, and just think, okay, yeah, how can we make it better? And then hopefully in a couple months, we're like, hey, Chris, <laughs> what do you think of this Velcro? Yeah. You know, that's, that's brilliant. I, I love that. So I have to, to talk to him about that. And maybe we got to get that back in the pipeline. So. Very those cool. those are that, that's way in the archives <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> so with with the uh the all black mitt like i'd say probably 75 percent of our contract guys have, are now in an all black mitt maybe mm -hmm. even higher. and i think that migration is all based on guys throwing faster guys are throwing faster it seems like year over year even though it's just a couple miles per hour again being the geek you know the kinetic energy goes by the square of the velocity one half mv squared so even small changes in, in velocity can make a, a big change in the energy um so, mm -hmm. so i think that's been one reason why guys are going to the, the all black is that they just want something stiffer that lasts longer because the mitts are taking more of you and then the thing that's really fascinating to me is that there's the 34 inch mitt because for years we've had the 35 inch the 33 and a half and the very tiny 32 and the 32 was, ah, there you go. Yes, that's right. You got one, CJ. So in, in yep. the, the only guys who've ever used a 32-inch mitt are uh, Benjamin Molina, Hector Sanchez, and then Martin Maldonado. And, and Maldi, over the last couple of years, he's started kind of migrating north and, and getting bigger. So he went from the 32 to 33 and a half. And then he, along with a couple of guys, said, hey, look, can you make a 34? And I, I remember talking to my dad about this and, and my brother and my dad is just like, why are we going to make a 34? We have so many guys who transition from a Rawlings or a Wilson 34, you know, into our 33 and a half, that extra half an inch on the circumference is really not going to make a big difference. You know, no, said, it probably does. Well, yeah. And I said, I said, well, dad, look, we, we, you know, this better than anyone else. You got to listen to the players, you know? 
And it, it's, it's, again, it's the increased velocity, but it's also guys are throwing with more movement. And going to a 35 inch from our 33 and a half is just too big of a jump. Mm -hmm. It's just good. So um, that 34 just gives you that little bit, you know, you know, margin for error. It might be mental. And, and, I, and if it's placebo, if it's mental, hey, that's real, you know, like, so, but we, we've had this year, so many guys without us going out saying, hey, this is available now. We've had so many guys on contract say, hey, for my, my mitts for 2020, I want them 34, not 33 and a half. Um, so huge switch. Um, mm. I forget the percentage right now, but I think it, it was pretty sizable. I think basically whatever we did last year for contract players as a 33 and a half, I think about 50% to 60% went to 34. It was crazy. Wow. I mean, just couldn't, couldn't imagine that. Especially since it was all word of mouth. Again, I wasn't out there telling guys like, hey, oh, yeah. Want next year? They just kind of would. It would kind of filter in throughout the course of last year. Um, but again, I think it's just it, it's just a sign of the times, you know, like how the game is changing and what the guys got to do to you know receive the ball accurately. Question: Do you guys have any of those currently in stock right now? The thirty fours? No. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we severely well, just like with the pro players, you know, like <clears throat> I ran out of because um, you know we basically put in two custom mitt orders for pro players per year. Um, mm. And the big one is in September. And basically kind of like December, January, I started hearing from a lot of guys that they want to change to a 34. So I had forecasted for some stock 34 inches just to use for our pro guys. Um, Cause I have like my own corner of the warehouse where I have, have stock for, you know, chest protectors, leg guards, mitts, um, all different crazy colors for all the minor mm. leagues. And the idea is we have that buffer stock so that hopefully we never run out of what the, the teams need because predicting colors from year to year, month to month is nearly impossible with, with, with team colors. Um, yeah. We don't want to be caught short. So we kind of keep that reserved for them. Same exact product, um, except it has less logos because MLB has restrictions on how big you're <laughs> But aside from that, it's the same makeup, same physical structure, what have you. Um, so with those 34 inch mitts that I forecasted, in, I under forecasted as well. And uh, towards you know the end of you know of shipping things out to spring training, guys who wanted the 34s, I, I said sorry, guys, like you have to wait, um, just don't have them. So uh, yeah, and because again, like we we knew it could be big, but we weren't. We were just totally surprised by how how many people wanted a 34 inch. Um, wow. So it, it's crazy. I mean, small. It seemed like a small difference, but it just had this huge, profound effect. Very cool. Um, let's talk about some training gloves. Uh, I guess start off with uh, maybe that that tiny one that we can, I guess, have our, our co-host uh, tell the story about where he came up with that idea. In fact, I'll just interject here, Chris, that I didn't know until it was, what, the 20th or 25th anniversary that you posted that picture on Instagram of, of really the true you know, origin story of this, this beautiful guy. So, yeah, please, please educate us. It was, uh, <clears throat> so we're, we're in spring training in Montreal. So we're down in Jupiter, Florida. And we're, um, you know, we had the old infielder saucer um, foam thing that the end with a couple of rubber bands at the back end. And so we're, it was, it was hot. It was humid. You know, guys are tired. It was I'm like, Ugh. so they're firing the ball off the jugs machine. And it's literally hitting the hand, bouncing everywhere. And I look at our, our catching guy, and I forget who it was at the time, but he had the ass a little bit. It was early in the morning. He didn't have his coffee, and 
and I go, honestly, so what is, what is this teaching? I said, we never catch a ball right here. I said, you never catch a ball in the middle of your hand. I said, all we're teaching is to, to catch it wrong and let it bounce off somewhere. And he's like, well, Snoozy, he goes, you're, you're, a, you know, you're an artsy guy. He goes, you do some drawing stuff from that. He goes, why don't you just design something for us? And like called me out in front of everyone. And I'm like, well, fine, then I will. So I remember we're in the locker room, sitting down, brown bag lunch. And I took a sheet of paper and a pencil and literally traced my hand and drew a glove around it. And when I threw the, the idea out to your dad, I go, this might be something that would be good for kids. I said, but this drill, the drill work that we're doing right now is stupid. It doesn't make any sense to me. It surely doesn't help. And we got to find a way to let kids catch into this imaginary space. I said, so if you can, if you can maybe design this, I don't know how many people would like it, but uh, you know, I think that it would help out for younger kids for just getting a feel for receiving. And so, you know, a couple months later, he goes, we're going to uh, send you a couple. So he sent me like five and I gave, uh, I gave one to uh, Chris Bando at the time um, with the Indians and a couple other guys. I'm like, yeah, you know, I just give them away here, you know, test these out, play around with them. And I think it was at the end of the year where uh, your dad's like, yeah, he goes, we, uh, we sent these around to some other people too, as like a test. And we got really good feedback on it. And he goes, so we're going to, we're going to put this in our line. And I'm like, wow, that's really, that's really cool. And then, um, yeah, then we just started using that. And, and whenever I would have them, people would come up to me like, Hey, what is that thing? I remember we were with, uh, <clears throat> when was it? I think it was Oh three when I was with the pirates and Benito Santiago were in the outfield and, and he comes up and he's like, Hey, what, what you got there? And I go, Oh, it's a little catcher's training glove. And like, he had to have it. And I go, well, you're not an all-star guy. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, this is great for the outfield and I don't have to carry a big glove. And he goes, I'll tell you what, you don't tell anybody, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you like a half a dozen bats, you know, and when you're in the minor leagues, somebody gives you wooden bats. You're like, I'll give you anything you want. Just give me some wood, you know? So yeah, that was, that was it. And, um, you know, throughout the years, we've always, um, I've always sent out designs and a couple different ideas. Um, we got into talking the one time about with the girls that I teach for, for softball, you know, and I just don't understand. They're basically like glorified first baseman gloves. And I, I would always say that extra, like a first baseman mitt outside here, what does it really serve for the purpose of a catcher on a softball glove? You know, if you, if you're thinking about building a glove, you know, I would always want to start with the pocket. I want to start with that area between my thumb and my forefinger and just kind of build around there, kind of customize to the hand and what's going to work, what's going to work best. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's always a fun toy. And when, you know, I, I, people see it for the first time, they're like, man, where do I get one of these? And I'm like, go to the website. So you can, so you can pick them up anywhere now. But, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's cool. You know, there are a lot of, obviously, with um, – people that I've come in contact with people that actually have coached with me who, um, who run other glove companies, you know, we won't mention any names, but you know, they've done spinoffs on these and you know, when it, and you couldn't, and the first thing that your dad said was, look, you can't, you can't really um, trademark a glove because the only thing someone has to do is change the space of an eye hole or an eyelid. And it's a completely different glove. 
He goes, so, you know, people are going to obviously make copies and try to put their spin on it. And he goes, but, you know, we're, we're the first ones. So that, that'll always be that. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, like we're, unfortunately, we're always copied. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, helmets, face masks, mitts. Yep. I mean, I mean, so, some of them are pretty egregious um, in terms of what lengths I go to mimic what we're doing. But um, I guess, it's, you know, what's this, the saying? Like, you know, like imitation is the most sincere form of flattery or whatever. But yep. right. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it still sucks, though, <laughs> to be perfectly well, honest. Often imitated, hard. never duplicated, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it kind of validates it, you know. And um, yeah, and, and actually, you know, going back to the the hockey style helmet, we we you know back when we first came out, that we had several patents on it, and we could have enforced them, but maybe in some ways that would have actually prevented it from going to where it is now, you know. Um, but who knows? Mm -hmm. But it's, um, but yeah, I mean, like, like it's that said that we we have enforced some patents. Um, uh, and it has been an, an advantage, but you're right, Chris is like, there's, there's ways to work around the patent. If it's not, it's this balance. Like if the patent is too specific, it's easy to get around it. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's too general, then typically the, the patent examiner will say, well, no, you can't get a patent on this. It's too general, you know? So, um, it, it's, it's all interesting, but, um, yeah, it's, but we, we, that's exactly as we saw that mindset that like, we just want to be first, you know, like, right. and just innovating um if people want to keep copying us yeah whatever i mean typically especially in this, this day and age of social media i think a lot of people are hip to that now and um can kind of tell like oh actually wait that's not the original that's that's sort of a knockoff mm -hmm. um, and there's you know so so that that helps um but, yeah, how does the uh how does the 3d printer help now than it did say 15 20 years ago oh, it's it's amazing i mean it we so just outside here is is our design space that we call the bunker um, and, uh, I'd show it to you, except that all the lights are off and it's a mess. It's always a mess. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> we're always cutting things up and, 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 you know, prototyping. Uh, we have two, two 3d printers, um, and we use them not weekly, but monthly, uh, several times a month. And it's amazing because, you know, like ever since I started working here back 2005, going back to that, that, the helmet we're talking about, like trying to, you know, evolve from where Yachty's helmet was to, to where we are now we've always done 3d printing from that point forward. Um, at that point in time, we used uh, quick parts. They're uh, an outfit down in Georgia. Um, basically I would up upload the CAD files. Um, and then about, you know, three to four days later, we'd have the actual printed plastic part. And it's amazing because then you, you know, based you know, on our decades of, of helmet design, we, we typically know plus or minus what we need to put inside the helmet for adequate padding. We start there. So we take the 3d print, put the padding in it, start putting on people's heads see how it fits. I mean, pretty basic, right? And um, you start finding, oh, hey, it's a little bit tight here, maybe a little bit too loose front to back. So we adjust the CAD. And then we, we, we at, again, back, you know, back 2005, you know, we would wait another week or so, get another plastic part, try it. Hey, it's perfect. You know, it's, it's, it's dialed in. And that's important because, you know, when you commit to a mold, it's like 80, 90 grand for a, a P20 steel injection mold for the shell. And once you make it, you can't make any major changes. You know, you can maybe add some thickness, you know, do a few cosmetic things, buff some lines out, but the, 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 the fundamental geometry is set. And if it ends up coming too tight, you're, you're living with that for the next three, four, five years, you know, however long that product's going to live for. So, um, so 3D printing is extremely important so that we can sleep at night, you know, just knowing that we, once we've, we've kind of finalized design, it really, yeah. we get that first shot. Um, the other reason it's amazing. I mean, we 3d print things that we never even thought we'd 
3D print. Uh, we're 3D printing foam components. We, we have like a, a, a flexible elastomer that we can print um, to, to represent foam padding. So we can kind of check the fit of different shapes, which is really nice. Um, the the Axis leg guard. So our, our leg guard that came out a couple years ago with the hinge. Yeah. That, that was something I started, you know, Mickey mousing around with probably like nine-ish years ago. I, I was looking at motocross leg guards. You know, you guys who are out dirt biking, you know, had, you know, you know, uh, what, you know, the shin and thigh pads that had these hinges. And I was like, that's kind of cool, you know, because back in 2005, when I started, one of the first things my dad said is like, hey, the triple knee leg guard design that we, you know, kind of pioneered, it's great for protection, what have you. But every time you stand up, you, you, you're pulling up the, the, mm-hmm. the you know, like it kind of keeps diving into your kneecap and it's uncomfortable. You know, we got to fix that. And we tried years and nothing ever really worked. I started playing around with hinges. Eh, it was kind of bulky, and and a lot of the dirt dirt bike, you know, motocross, you know, leg guards didn't really protect the knee very well. And if they did, they were they were built in such a way that they would very quickly get full of dirt. You know, as soon as you drop to your knees doing blocking drills or sliding, they would just get all all buggered mm-hmm. up. So we kind of sat on it for a while. And then the, the, the biggest thing was having the 3D printer. And then we also had a, a new designer, Austin Roderick, uh, join us. And, and, and Austin's dad is Gary, who I mentioned at the beginning. He's the pro rep, who I'm sure, Chris, you met many times over the yep. years. So Austin's amazing. Um, you know, Carnegie Mellon guy, super smart. Um, his ability to do CAD work is through the roof. And so basically with, with Austin's you know, CAD designs and then the 3D printer in-house, because at that point, we had our own in-house 3D printer. We could just every day be printing new designs trying to get the right fit, the right pivot point, and then we nailed it. Um, and so, so it's, yeah, 3D printing's huge. Um, and like I said, just having one here, you just print it for all kinds of things. Even, um, let's see, yeah, even in the test lab, like this little doohickey right here, you know, this is, um, you, know, you know, batting helmets and catcher's helmets on the head form. You know, in terms of doing quality control testing, you, there's a lot of variation in the testing, like I mentioned. Just putting the helmet on, you know, day in and day out, Mm-hmm. And can affect the results. Um, so back to the testing I did, just it could have been just like how I put the helmet on. So this is the, the helmet positioning index, the HPI, and you basically put it on the headform's nose. There's like a little groove in the nose, and then the brim of a batting helmet goes right here. And so we have just great repeat, repeatability with this. But this is just something that we 3D print in-house. Um, so again, we just, all kinds of things you start doing with it once you have it here. So it's super cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, how about some some of the other training gloves? Uh, one of the ones that I love using the most is the donut. I don't have that one here because and that's that that in just the last six months, they have like gone off the shelf. And you know we're seeing guys like you, Tyler, and others like posting videos of using it. And I, like I, yeah. And so tell me more about the donut and like how you use it. I mean, we tell guys it's great for transfer and just you know trying. <clears throat> hands absolutely so with regards to receiving just because it's at an all-time high and how we're able to quantify it and everything it's just uh i think more or less the way i use it is just to understand the first move of the receiver right what are they doing are they pushing through the ball are they are they above the ball uh, and i think with regards to how it's just designed it's designed to to give positive feedback right away like okay, is your pocket in the right position to receive the ball? And so, um, no, the guys, the guys love it. They first, at, when they're not doing it correctly, they hate it. And uh, it said, you know, this is a, this is a challenge. I mean, you're, 
you're all basing this off of, you know, if you're failing at this, then obviously we're getting to the right track. We're on the right track because you're going to get to be more successful with it. So I just, I love it. Um, you know, we use it for transfers as well. Uh, we use it with our throwing, but a lot of, a lot of receiving, um, just, you know, again, just absorbing the pitch and, and uh, being in the right position, using the leverage of the hand and stuff. So it's really, it's really nice. I, I, I like it. A, I was going to say, I, did, I need a new one though, Stan, because uh, mine's a little, little soft right now because we use it so much. Stan, the thing that I like the most about the donut is when I talk about, you know, about having soft hands, you know, you see a lot of guys that will be relaxed before the ball comes and then they open and grab. And I said, well, if, I'm throwing an egg at you. That's not really soft. You're actually doing the opposite of what you think is soft. So I like it for the fact that your hand is completely wide inside the glove and you can't close it. You have to keep it like this. And, and on impact, you'll relax a little bit. So it's mm -hmm. this motion versus the, the actual grab. And once yeah, kids get, once they, once they get a feel for that, they're like, Oh, that's what you mean by, you know, having tension before the ball hits you versus, you know, the quarter turn or the relax, you know, mm -hmm. if you relax your hand, your hand's automatically closed. As soon as you open it up, now you get a bigger space. So that's, that's the, my main, my main point when I, I have the kids using that. Yeah. The fact that it's just instantaneous feedback. I mean, there, there's no way to say, okay, you're, you're not catching it properly regardless. If you're not getting it in the pocket and you're doing anything different other than that, you're not catching it flat out. You're done. Fix it. Right. <laughs> and I, and it, I mean, and that's in today's day and age with these kids, which everything is a questionable why, 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 why compared to where kind of when we all grew up, it was here's how you're going to do it here, and you're done. Well, now all these kids have to have to understand the why to everything they're doing, which I'm, I'm cool that I get it. I'm glad they ask questions, but now it gives them the, well, why am I doing that? Why am I not catching it? Well, here's why you're not catching it. It's automatic feedback to them. And I think the one last thing that I'll add about the glove is that you can catch higher velocity with it. You don't mm -hmm. have that fear, you know, right. just because of the padding and whatnot in it. Chris, I saw you hold up the, the, the uh, anvil. The anvil. Yeah, it's yep. getting there. We get, we're getting it. Which I think, Tyler, I, I think in a previous uh, uh, episode, Tyler, you call it the anchor, which I, I like that too. Like Did I call yeah. it the anchor? I think uh -huh. so. Yeah, because it, it, it kind of, it's like, oh, hey, maybe we, we miscalled it. You know, like we should have made it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I like it. I like it. Oh, and when, when my CJ will use that, he's like, oh, my God, this thing's so heavy. I go, well, it's going to build up your forearms, buddy. I yeah. said, and now put, your, now put your regular glove on. He's like, oh, it doesn't even feel like I'm wearing it. I'm like, so that's the purpose of it. I've introduced the anvil into my walk-ups with my more elevated guys to really work on the reaction times to, to get them a little bit quicker, so wow. to speak. So they've hated it, and some have loved it, but then they learn to like it. Totally. Well, first off, where did the donut idea come from? And then I guess, again, where did people come up with the idea of putting weights or you can tell about what going into the, the anvil? The donut, I can't remember, Tyler. Um, again, this is something that came through, uh, again, a player um, that was working with my dad. And basically the call for was an old school 1950s no break mitt for all the reasons you guys said. I mean, like if, if, if you can't close your hand around it, it forces you to catch in the right way. Um, and, and so that was interesting. I'm mean, actually just upon my head, like thinking about Tony Pena coming through Fenway, I showed him an early prototype of it 
and he thought it was pretty cool, but he's like, oh no, it's like, it's too thick. You got to bring the, you know, bring the padding down a little bit. And I remember he, he took a pen and drew it for me, you know, like where, where it was. And um, so, but yeah, it's, it was just, again, another player driven feedback. You know, I mean, we, we never pretend that we know everything about the sport. We just listen, mm-hmm. you know, that's the biggest thing we do. Um, the, the Anvil was another Tim Cousins brainchild. So Tim, you know, former of the Cubs, uh, you know, uh, now. Timmy was, with, Timmy was with me when we, when we drew up the, uh, the other one because we were oh, he was the, with cool. the expos at the time oh i didn't know i didn't know wow see i, I don't know tim's history yeah. that far great and, guy oh tim's amazing i mean he, to see him in his element working with the players it's incredible like the the yep. and also terrifying too i think tend to be one of his players <laughs> well terrifying was the equalizer when yeah i mean we'd oh. use that and i'd be like i've i'm like terrified to yep. use that thing yeah so, we, we we go to trade shows and we tell people, yeah, these are on discount because they're just made the wrong way. You know, they're, they're not. They're <laughs> but, um, nice. But yeah, but yeah, like the whole idea behind the equalizer, uh, I mean, very similar to, to your point with, with uh, the pocket, uh, Chris, is like just trying to, to catch in the same spot over and over again. You know, if, if you got this big web out here and you, you keep snaring it out there, you get sloppy, you know. And so this, without any big web, you have no choice but to get, to get your hand to the right spot definitely wear a face mask you know oh i was just gonna say that yeah <laughs> so this was yeah tim cousin's idea um worked with my dad on this one and then uh, then tim had the idea for the anvil and and this is something we, we started knocking around he and i probably a couple of years before we actually made some some real progress towards it and kind of been thinking about it is like you know, part of the hesitation is like who's gonna pay money to have some weights put into a mitt you know everyone's already paying a lot of money for their gamer and they might have a backup they already have, you know, snoozes, you know, CM100 TM pocket mitt, you know, they might have the equalizer. Um, but we started thinking about like wrist weights. And part of our concern about doing like just a heavy wrist weight was that, especially guys, if they're catching at velocity, if you've got mass here on your wrist, that's going to resist motion. And maybe you end up torquing some ligaments or tendons, you know, more um, if you're doing, again, like high velocity with weight um, on the wrist. So, so we also thought about like, well, where do you want to put weight for what we're trying to achieve? Because what we're initially trying to achieve is, is really good arm strength starting from the shoulder out. And this is something that, uh, you know, Tim mentioned, um, another guy, uh, Chris Brionis, listened to a lot. Um, you know, he, he said, yeah, a mark of a good catcher, a lot of good shoulder uh, strength. Um, other scouts that we talked to, same thing. They're like, oh yeah, we look for shoulder strength, you know, and a good catcher for good receiving. So we wanted to put the weight as far out from the shoulder as possible. So again, you know, wrist wouldn't be so bad, but if we can get out to the tips of the mitt, that's, that's, you know, ideal. Just get, you know, more leverage on your shoulder. Yeah. But then the thing that I really liked about it from the beginning is what I really wanted to work on. It was like all the finer muscle movement, you know, when you're, you're working up through the ball, you know, that's not, your shoulder so much as like smaller muscles, you know, in your forearms and even, you know, up, down through your, your palm and whatnot. So, and, and the, the analogy for me is like, I used to do a lot of, a lot of bike racing. So in the winter time in new England, you really can't go out and ride when it's below zero. Um, you know, so you spend hours, you know, riding in your basement and you got kind of two things. You got the trainer, which is basically a flywheel that you hook up to your bike, gives you a lot of resistance. You can push really hard on it, but your, your bike is just stationary. Then you have the rollers, and these are funny contraptions. But you got two like rolling, you know, like uh, rolling pins that you put your your back wheel on, and you have one rolling pin that your front wheel's on, and it's your own balance that keeps you up. Like you can kind of go side to side on it, and even though you can't push as hard on it, 
I feel more exhausted after riding the rollers because you're using all of your smaller stability muscles to kind of keep your balance. And so when, when Tim started talking about this, that's what I was saying. It's like, you want to train those smaller muscles. And again, if you, if you put the weight on the wrist, you're not getting that. Whereas if you have weight, you know, along your pinky and your thumb, that rotation motion, you're going to be working a lot more of those smaller muscles Mm -hmm. your forearm. So, so that's, you know, one thing that I was really looking forward to. And it was kind of validated because as we started getting some prototypes out to guys like Tim Cousins, Chris Brionis, they started saying, Hey, guys that, you know, in the miners who are, who are a bit noisy back there, this really settles them down. And I was like, aha, like that's it. Because that, that muscle burn, that makes ooh, sense. you just gotta, gotta slow it down, you know, so you don't get, get that, that all those little muscles, you know, you know, activated. So, so that was really cool to hear that. Um, you know, so we, we knew we had the strength because it is pretty heavy. We knew we were kind of getting that, the guys to calm down. The coolest thing that I heard was transfer. I never, heard, I never imagined this would help with transfer, but as guys started throwing with it, uh, I'm probably gonna describe this the wrong way, but some catchers kind of fly wide. You know, their, their mitt hand kind of goes, opens up, and then their, their throw you know, comes off target. But it with- keeps you more compact. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. yes. And I think it's just- Keeps you more in line with it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so guys, I think, are more aware of the mitt now because it's heavier, so they'll kind of keep it up against their body versus, you know, doing this. So, um, nice. so yeah, so it's, that, that was a really cool byproduct, if you will, you know, to kind of hear that, that feedback. So, yeah, th- th- so, so right now, the, the anvil is my favorite just because it's so unique. Um, copied it yet. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. right. About the keyhole. Now, I don't own one of the keyholes. I can't find it anywhere. I know that they were selling them down at, uh, or you guys were selling them down at um, ABCA, but. Uh, yeah, I ran into Brad and got a couple. Yeah. So, and Chris, I think you've got one too as well. I, uh, I do. How so, come I'm always the last one out right here? <laughs> <laughs> so the keyhole is the idea of uh, Eddie Rodriguez, uh, you know, former Yankees uh, catcher, now with the Marlins. I think he's got the head catching coordinator job on the big league side. So Eddie, I mean, it's a similar conversation as to, you know, the other mitts is like, you know, how do we train guys to receive, you know, in the same spot? And, and Eddie's, uh, you know, kind of, I think, tagline, I think, with it is being pocket aware. And so this mitt is kind of the inverse of the equalizer. You know, the equalizer, we took stuff away so you catch, you know, in the right spot. Whereas the keyhole is different in that it's got a, a netted hole where you're supposed to receive. Um, the, the one thing that my brother Brad and I have, have a little trouble with is that we seem, we need to get the hole lower. Um, you know, cause if, if you, you know, are trying to, you know, receive the ball, you know, I mean, a lot of times it's, you know, kind of down here, but the hole is kind of up here. So we, we, we have a little bit of a challenge. I'm curious what CJ and, and Chris have to say about it, because I'm worried that we might be training guys to, to catch up a little bit high. If we move the pocket down or this netted hole lower, then you start hitting your finger. And the thing we run into is like, well, I think it needs to be a little bit spaced open a little bit more because it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly tight U or spot to it. So that's, that's the thing. So you have yeah. the U right there, mm-hmm. right now. <clears throat> I think the, I think the one that I'm, that I sent off to you guys is a, it's, it's a, a little different version of that. I mean, it's still mm-hmm. with the, with the netting and everything. But when you have the U this way, your hand is almost <clears throat> up in here with the glove. So once this spreads out, now you have, yep. like the U is like this, but if it's wider, now you're in more of an L shape. Right. That's where, 
I mean, that's the that's the modification. Well, that it's I like when your your hands in your glove here, you're going to get more of an L to that yep. feel to where your pocket hits. I think that's where the the part of the of the keyhole is that that part of it. It's it's the radius of it is too small because sometimes if a ball, I mean, it, it a minute portion of it. That's almost like it fits too tight in that little keyhole section. It needs to be just a tad wider and maybe a little bit lower, but not offset towards the index finger so much. Yeah. But could that also could also that be not just that, but it could also be the the thumb. Mm -hmm. Is your think of where your hand is in a glove. You know, yeah. if my hand is is like this inside here, I've got all this extra mm -hmm. space up here. So maybe that's just a matter of the of the mm -hmm. thumb, you know, cutting it down a little bit. You know, like I said, there's there's a whole bunch of different ideas, but just the being able to use the different devices. Um, to achieve the same things like yeah. kids will I'll, I'll tell the kids when they use the keyhole and I'll <clears throat> I don't throw high velocity but I'll, I'll still throw it to them and I said the hardest thing that you have to do is I don't want you to try to actually grab and catch the ball That's I want right. you to let it hit it and then let the force close your hand for you and as soon as they try to grab one they'll get one on the tip or it'll mm -hmm. bounce out and they get frustrated but when they do one without even trying and just let it come in and go into yep. the net then it's like oh that's what you mean by it and i think that's same, been thing, one of the, same thing with the donut yeah and i think it's been one of the biggest advantages to that keyhole as well going from that and the donut is when you tell a kid don't close the glove i want you to just actually let it hit in the pocket so you feel it you get kids that even with a regular glove they'll want to go snatch snatch at us yep. let it sit and hit in the pocket and just feel it and feel it and i think that's been a big advantage of the of the keyhole using it that way as well Cool. Good stuff, guys. Yeah. I mean, again, this is, this is how we learn is just like putting in your hands, you know, and, and just, you know, keep making changes and, and uh, not really being content until we feel like we got it right. I will say an, an undisclosed company came by here one day and saw it and they, they sent me one to mimic the, uh, the pocket. Uh, um, and I was like, yeah, it works. It's just not the same though. <laughs> it happens, you know like it, it's you know it, we, we again we try not to take it personal um although that is really hard sometimes but we just try to you know as our slogan you know goes move forward above we just exactly above it and just keep on going and, and hopefully we're already on to the next thing you know that that they'll be copying in a couple of years so is is there something that is that's that's lying around that is on the forefront maybe coming forward down the road either in chest protectors leg guards maybe um, <laughs> that's why we're in here and not out there in the, in the bunker, you know, cause they, there are like just prototypes all over the place that we're working on and we're always tinkering on something, you know, yeah. like we're always trying to improve, um, kind of revamp different things. Um, do you want, do you want to meet Francis for a moment here? So, um, <laughs> so, so this is uh, Francis who is um, our, our Noxy test surrogate here. Um, okay. Um, I'm not even sure where I should start. So this is another thing I could probably, we could probably hold a whole other podcast on, uh, the, uh, on Commodio Cordis. So, um, so Francis is supposed to be an average 14 year old boy because Commodio Cordis really is a condition that occurs around the age of 14. Okay. A few years. Um, typically once you go above age 18, you don't see it anymore. Uh, it's true that in baseball, it happens more than any other team sport. Uh, lacrosse, I think, is a close second. And you guys are probably aware of this already, but basically, commodio cordis or commotio cordis, it's pronounced two different ways, 
is basically a disruption of your heart's rhythm. And it occurs at, if you get hit at just the wrong time during the T wave of your heart cycle. So your, your heart has a you know, certain rhythm and a certain portion mm -hmm. of it, if you're unlucky enough to get hit during that time, that like microsecond, and you have to get hit within the right range of ball speeds. So if the ball speed is too low, it doesn't happen. But also the ball's too high, in theory, it doesn't happen either. So there's sort of the sweet spot. And they think that's partly why you see it around age 14, because it's typically around ball speeds of like 50 to 70 miles per hour um, where this occurs, um, just based on observations. There's a database that's been collecting injury data for about 40 years. Um, so that's kind of, kind of where they've kind of bounded it. Down the road is uh, Tufts University and uh, Dr. Link uh, used to be there. He's now, I think, at a, a university in Texas. But um, basically as, at Tufts University, he studied this with pigs. So he had juvenile swine uh, pigs that apparently have a, a rib cage and heart size and heart proximity to the rib cage, similar to a 14 year old boy. And in his lab, he would basically shoot these pigs with lacrosse balls and basically cause the pigs to have heart attacks. He put the paddles, hmm. really put the paddles on the pig, you know, and, and you, know, you know, shock the pig's heart back into rhythm and then do it all over again. Um, and so that's where he learned a lot about, you know, what causes this. So then uh, comes along guy Nate Dow, and Dr. Dow, he was doing his PhD thesis, I believe. He built this mechanical surrogate to sort of represent the pig models uh, so that we have a more reproducible way to do testing. The thing I'll pause here and say, and this is, I don't want this coming off negative, but as an engineer looking at data, it's true that baseball has this happen more than any other sport, but when you start dialing down into position, you see that there's been well over 300 cases in baseball, but only about three in 40 years of tracking this injury, only three were with catchers. So um, in some ways, you know, we're, we're, we're saying, well, hey, like, shouldn't this standard also apply to like heart guards and compression base layer shirts that advertise, you know, that, you know, they, they help with injury prevention of the heart. And so far, the standard's only been directed at catchers, chest protectors, and goalie, uh, and lacrosse goalie protectors and defensive. So, um, so anyway, so that's a little bit of backstory, but regardless, like, hey, there's a standard, we need to meet it. So to answer your question, CJ, the surrogate is pretty sensitive. Um, we're not trying to game system, so to speak, but we certainly were trying to make this as small as possible, but the smaller you get, the more force you get transferred into basically this cardiac load cell right here. So that, okay. that's why that our, our plate is as you know big in the vertical direction as it is um okay. pretty you know term, in terms of the companies who've kind of caught up to us because we we're the first to market and first certified to meet the standard a couple of years ago um i think we're still doing a pretty good job in terms of keeping it as small as possible and also not as puffy uh, as as other you know brands are coming yeah. out so um but yeah that that's sort of kind of it i mean that's that's the other thing we're doing down here instead of just always testing helmets. We're not, you know, testing chest protectors for quality control as well. Right. So what what was the cause that brought this to the forefront this last year? That like did something happen yeah. somewhere that just? Well, yeah, and that's that's out of our hands. I mean, it's really the way. Let me put Francis back on the show. Um, so the, the way the way that this typically you know works is that, that Noxie is charged with 
setting safety standards. And it's typically an organization like Little League or the National Federation High School or perhaps NCAA approaches Noxy and, and their, their board and say, hey, we have a need for X. And it could be a baseball standard. It could be a helmet standard. Um, you know, there are all kinds of Noxy standards. And so, so Noxy then looks at the injury and tries to find a good way to study it and prevent it and a good test that would ensure that you minimize the risk for that injury. So um, just because Noxy makes a standard doesn't mean that you have to adopt it um, because basically the Noxy standard can live in existence, but it doesn't really mean anything until an organization adopts it. So what happened this past year, and actually it really started, I think three years ago now, the, the National Federation of High School said, hey, starting in January, in, starting January 1st, um, uh, 2020, all high school kids have to use a, a chest protector that meets the NOXI standard. Um, and so, unfortunately, I don't think there's enough PR around this to really get the word out because we've, we've been selling these for over two years now. And starting in about January of this past year, we just were running out. We're air, we're still we're still air freighting shipments in right now to keep up with the demand, and it's almost like January hit and suddenly everyone's like, "Oh crap! Like we we you know we we need these. What what's this? Yeah, this whole? exactly. And we had honestly we had a lot of upset customers um, that basically um, were like, "Hey, I just bought a new chest protector um, from uh, from you guys like back in like October." And now I can't use it. And it's like, well, hey, we're really sorry, but you know, we did our best on our website to try to educate you guys, like that, you know, what was certified to meet the standard and what was yeah. not. Um, so um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's it was a mess from that point. But again, that's not really our responsibility. So far, only NFHS has, has adopted the standard. Like Little League has not yet. Babe Ruth has not yet. Um, right. All probably won't. Just they tend not to have many rules regarding equipment. Um, so, so there's still opportunity to use it if you're playing travel ball, I believe. Um, so Which is interesting that you just said that too, is that it happens around the ages of 14 plus or minus and a certain velocity, but high school is going to be more tended towards your upper older kids. It's going to be hopefully, I mean, I would hope above 70 mile an hour pitches if we're in high school sports. I, I'll just say that I think there's some politics and business around it and leave it at that. Um, but but you're exactly right. I mean, if you look at the injury data, you know, there is this target window around age 14. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was interesting that NFHS jumped on this. And then what was also very interesting is that around September or October, the NCAA suddenly announced, like their scientific advisory board suddenly said, hey, effective January 2020, all college catchers must use you know, you know, certified Noxy chest protectors. Wow. Yep. Us on the one hand is like, well, wait, this, this typically outside the injury window, um, is it really necessary? I mean, and certainly like, you know, meeting a standard perhaps is better if you're trying to minimize an injury, you know? Um, but on the other hand, you, you really kind of have to ask, is it, is it really needed? Um, similarly, I had major league and minor league guys saying, Hey, do I need this now? And I said, well, well Honestly, not yeah. really. Typically, once you're age 18, like your 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 bones, or the theory. This is not proven, but the theory is that uh, 
the bones are much more dense and stronger in your rib cage. Uh, you have more musculature as well. And those, those things basically help minimize the amount of you know, force and trauma to your heart for similar pitch speed or, or, or foul tip speed. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, but the, the NCAA very quickly retracted it. Um, which it was a, it was a big mess. Um, uh, yeah, odd. very, very odd, <laughs> but again, we don't make the rules. We just make the product that meets the rules and, and we go from yeah, there. Absolutely. Right. Well, right on. Cool. Well, <clears throat> we're gonna, I think Chris, we're going to shift over to announce those winners, our giveaway, our giver, uh, the all-star giveaway. <laughs> so let me hit the, uh, I'm going to hit the, uh, random number picker here. And I got the list of everybody that that uh, followed the guidelines on both Twitter and um, Instagram. So I'm going to hit that here. Uh, you guys can see this on your screens right here. So uh, Stan, let's do the first one. Let's see this one. Let me hit that. So the first one will be our Instagram winner. So why don't you announce that one if you can? So this is the, the lucky winner who has the handle of Matt underscore Gurnow 14. Once again, well, Matt. Congratulations. Yeah. So M-A-T-T underscore G-U-R-N-O-W 14. All right, cool. And then let's do the Twitter one. Let's pop that one up. And there's your winner. Who we got? Yeah. So for Twitter, it is, it looks like a Bryce Abel 13. B R Y C E A B E L L 13. Fantastic. So those, uh, those two guys, I'll post the, uh, the video along with their, um, with their handles and their pictures. So those are our two winners. And then, um, Stan, I guess we can get there. We'll have them DM you the addresses and then they can enjoy their, uh, their CM 100 TMs. Get a lot That's of work awesome. out of it. And 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 the last thing is is that All Star is sending me a donut and anvil and a focus framer and a pocket and a magnesium mask. and a thirty four inch mitt, right? That's right. <laughs> Although since I've been the hockey style guy, I might have to have to eventually try one of these traditional masks. So I, I'm the, a uh, I'm a big fan of the FM four thousand. It, it's I might have to I might have to uh, I don't know make some more more posts and see if I can get one sent up. <laughs> and of course the, the blue for the, for the mound visit colors, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic, Stan. We, uh, we can't thank you enough. Great background in history and just a tremendous company that you guys are running there and just the innovativeness uh, that you guys have put forth, not just in the position, but just in all of baseball. Um, and again, you know, we're moving right along with you and rising above everything. So again, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. Thanks guys. It was, it was so much fun to talk shop and uh, hopefully we can talk about some more stuff down the road as well. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank, Sam. thank you so much. And we hope your family and y'all are staying safe and healthy and all this, this time like, and everything, man. Absolutely, man. Thanks thank guys. You again. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks, man. Take care. Are you all intrigued yet? 
A huge thank you to Stan and his team over at All Star Sports. Go give them a follow on Instagram at All Star Sporting Goods or Twitter at All Star Sports. Or you can even go visit their website at all-starsports.com. We want to say thank you again for tuning in. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrill. And on behalf of Chris and CJ, we want to say thank you, be well, and you're going to catch us real soon.